0: Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for
1: listening. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.
2: Hello. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you all. So precious to be together all right so today um, today i'm going to cover the eight verses of mind transformation Um, this is a really precious text um don just wrote um, yeah we're going to actually give you the the written form of the the eight verses themselves here in a little bit as we go along This is um, in, in the style of a Lojong text. Um, Lojong um, means mind training. Usually, uh, people are familiar with Lojong. Um, it's 59 uh, slogans that we can kind of look at um, as a way to kind of um, look at the essence of the entire path. And they're usually attributed to Atisha, which I'm going to talk about uh, in a little bit. And uh, yeah, so John." mind training, means mind training. Lo means mind. And in particular, this, this term for mind, this Lo, uh, means the untamed mind or the kind of wild mind. And then John is, is to tame or to train. So this is how we get the mind training in Lojong. These eight verses are a favorite of the Dalai Lama. He loves to talk about the eight verses, and they're kind of special to me because Atlanta Medicine Buddha. We have something called the Eight Verses Trail. So Atlanta Medicine Buddha in in Soquel near Santa Cruz, uh, where I was I had the opportunity to live for a couple of years. We have the Eight Verses Trail. So this beautiful trail through the redwoods and there's benches set up and you get to sit at the bench and kind of look at the phrases and meditate on them for a little bit and they're really beautiful. So I was revisiting them recently and, and of course like all, all the Dharma, you know, it's just so universal and, and just lasting, you know, so, uh, so beautiful for our time and when I was reading them, Again, I recognized how transformative they were to my current mind state. Um, there's a lot of division in our, in our society right now, and in my own mind when I look at uh, different people's opinions, I keep having to remind myself and reach into the bag of tricks of the Dharma, saying, okay, how could I be at peace with this? How can I move forward you know, with this uh, in, in a peaceful way? And dealing with all the different divisions and, and different opinions and all of these things. So so these are very simple. And so being that they're so simple, and in a way, these are very, these are like pillars of the Dharma. You know, things that we quote unquote, we already know. I want to go a little bit into the history of how we got here. Because we really need to to remember how sacred they are and kind of like uh, how genius they are um, to to come upon these teachings and to look into uh, the minds of these beings that gave them uh, to us. Uh, yeah, so, so extremely important because we could easily look at these teachings and kind of throw them off a little bit, you know, just saying, oh, yeah, I already know that. But to really look in to see how powerful they are in our own mind and also the history of them and see how how uh, they arrived. Uh, I think it's very beneficial. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of how we got the, these teachings. And I'm always a little nervous to, to do so because this is not my strength. You know, the more academic history, the scholarly stuff, it's definitely not my strength. but. Um, But being that I think it's so important, I'm going to give it a shot. So kind of bear with me here for a few minutes. So to really see where these teachings came from, we have to go back all the way to the beginning of when Buddhism arrived in Tibet. So Buddhism arrived in Tibet via Padmasambhava, who was really an emanation. Some people called him the second Buddha. And Sambhava means uh, the lotus born, you know, because he was found as an eight-year-old boy. He's kind of like appeared um, in a lotus flower, supposedly, and a large one, I guess. Um, so he's really this divine emanation, and he brought Buddhism to, to Tibet in the seventh century. And he brought all of Buddhism. So he brought the Hinayana path, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana path. So he brought the totality of of Buddhism to Tibet. And In the next couple hundred years, there began to be quite a division in Tibet. We had the Hinayana schools, which primarily stuck to the suttas, the, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Brahmavaharas, and there was a division between the Hinayana schools and the Mahayana, the greater vehicles, and then of course the Vajrayana, which gets into the Tantras. So there began to be a big division. And if we look at the more the the, the Tantra schools, the Tantras are actually attributed to the Mahasiddhas. The Mahasiddhas are these Mahasiddha means great adept, or the great adepts of of um, medieval India. And these, and these adepts were the classical cave yogis. So they were, they were very determined uh, to reach enlightenment in the quickest way possible. But they were also intrigued with uh, the cities or the magical aspects of the path. And many people, many people think that this was out of necessity because in those times it was a fairly dangerous time. And so they were, they were keen on, on magic. So they had a lot of rituals and they used mantras. And they were also known to, to eat meat, to drink alcohol. Um, some of the rituals had you know sexual, sexual aspects to them. And of course they performed, um, they had yidams, which is deities, and they performed deity practice. So this is very common. Uh, in today's times when we think of higher tantras, which is the communion of um, our mind streams with a particular deity. So all of, all of this, the entire path, these different sets of teachings were there in Tibet. And really people felt that they were mutually exclusive, that the Hinayana path and the Mahayana path the Vajrayana path were very, very different. And so the king at the time was a very, very uh, strict practitioner of the dharma, loved the dharma. And he really saw that this division was causing strife in, in his country, in Tibet. And he needed a unifying force. So he decided to send a group off uh, down into India to find a teacher that could do this. And so, this is quite uh, an endeavor to do, to obviously travel from Tibet into India. So, I believe, I can't remember how many, but maybe seven to nine uh, uh, people left um, from Tibet to seek out a qualified teacher in India. After, after much searching, they found Atisha. Atisha is one of the most prolific teachers um, in all of, of Tibetan Buddhism. And they found Atisha, uh, but they could not bring him back. They didn't have enough resources. They didn't have, um, they weren't able to make actually direct contact with Atisha. But they definitely agreed. They all agreed that Atisha would be the one that could um, really unify the teachings in Tibet. So they came back and told the king. And as soon as the king heard the name Atisha, he knew that was definitely the teacher that they needed. And so he immediately sent another group into India to try to retrieve Atisha. And that group failed as well. And so he had to make a third trip. But this time, the king himself said, you know, I'm going to go. Actually, we're running out of money. So I have to go. I have to raise some money on the way. And we'll try to get Atisha to come into Tibet. So along the way, the king actually got captured by a rival king in Nepal. And so he was imprisoned at that time. Along with the king was his nephew, and his nephew was actually the heir um, uh, to the throne. And so uh, his nephew tried to raise money to get the king out of prison. At the time, uh, you had to... to get the king out of prison to raise the money they went by like limb by limb (laughs) so like you had to earn enough money to get his his limbs out you know a prison and his torso out of prison and his head out of prison (laughs) and so he's they said that they he earned enough money to get his limbs out of prison but not like the rest of his body out of prison you know so he went to the king and he told him this he's like look at i don't I, can't, I don't have enough money to get you, get you out of prison yet. And the king said, well, you know, I have died many, many deaths. But I have an opportunity here to die a very noble death. So what I want you to do is I want you to take the money that you have accumulated. And instead of trying to get more and getting me out of prison, I want you to take this money and try to get Atisha." to come back to Tibet, and that's what happened. So his nephew became the king, the former king ended up dying in the prison, and he sought out to, the nephew sought out to get Atisha. So when he found um, Atisha, actually just finding Atisha was quite difficult, but the scriptures say that the only reason why they actually got a direct audience with Atisha was through the grace of Avalokiteshvara. So the Buddha of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara began to manifest on their journey uh, through different beings. And finally they got a direct audience with Atisha. Now this was very difficult because Atisha was renowned and revered in India. And many people had tried to take Atisha away. So the abbot of the monasteries that Atisha frequented, they didn't like any outsiders to get a direct audience with Atisha. But they were able to do so, and they told Atisha of the problems in Tibet. And so Atisha said, well, you know, I would love to go, but of course I have a lot of duties here, and I'm getting advanced in age that I'm going to have to consult with my yidam, my deity. So Atisha's deity was uh, the great Tara, so Atisha prayed to Tara to say, you know, please give me a sign. Please give me a sign. What should I do? You know, should I stay in India? Or should I go to Tibet? And so after a few nights, Atisha got a clear vision from the great Tara. And the great Tara told him that would be it would be of great benefit if he went to Tibet, not only for the, the generation of Tibetans at that time, but many, many future generations would be of benefit. But if he did go, he would lose you know, roughly 20 years um, of his life, that he would die at, at 72 instead of in his 90s. So Atisha said, no, oh, that this is, this is good. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go. And he convinced the abbot of the monastery. He was just very transparent to the abbot, and told the abbot everything. Like this is, this is what's happening in Tibet. He told him of the vision of, from Tara. And so the abbot agreed on one condition. The abbot said, "You can go, but you could only stay for a few years, only for three years, and then you come back." And, and teach again in India. So they they agreed. And so off they went. And it is said that it took Atisha and the nephew and the group, it took them two years to get back to Tibet. Once, a, once arriving in Tibet, Atisha started to teach, and he realized that there were really amazing practitioners in in Tibet. Almost so much so that he didn't know if he had anything to offer. He saw these fantastic practitioners in the Hinayana schools, fantastic practitioners in the Mahayana schools, fantastic practitioners of the Vajrayana schools. But then when he asked them to put the whole path together, they couldn't do it. And he saw what the original king saw. He saw that division, and what was happening. So he decided to write a, a lamp for the a lamp for the path to enlightenment. This was the core um, gift, the 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 major gift that Atisha gave. This beautiful text, and in this text, he synergized. or Yeah. He, I don't know if that's a word. (laughs) He created synergy between all all of the schools, and he did so by outlining specifically that there's different uh, capacities for different individuals. So he called it like the lesser capacity, the middle capacity, and the superior capacity. But in it wasn't in this way of like different levels of practitioners, but in that we all learn in different ways. So some people learn in a way that's more Hinayana, some people learn in a way that's more Mahayana, some people learn in a way that's more Vajrayana. So different capacities. So we outline this. And he also outlined the importance that that every word and every teaching from the Buddha was correct in its own way, and it held merit. So this teaching was extremely powerful. And it was expounded on later by Lama Sankapa, who is actually the founder of the Galupa tradition, which is what the Dalai Lama is the head of the Galupa tradition. So uh, Lama Sankapa wrote the, uh, um, the Lam Rim Chenpo, uh, Chenmo, sorry. And the Lam Rim is the gradual path to enlightenment. And the Lam Rim is known, it's based upon Atisha's work, to hold everything, so it, the entire path, the Lam Rim, the gradual path to awakening, it holds uh, the entire path, everything we need for enlightenment step by step. Right, So it's beautiful, beautiful work. So I want to back up just just a little bit on Atisha. So Atisha, how he gained his knowledge and, and from the actual text, from uh, the... A lamp on the path towards enlightenment. To enlightenment, not only is the Lam Rim embodied in there, but also the Lojong teachings. And again, these are these are really succinct um, slogans that we could reflect on that really incorporate the entirety of the path. So the Lojong teachings are extracted from this original text as well. And Atisha learned these from. Sir Lingpa. Sir Lingpa was this amazing um, master in Indonesia. And early in Atisha's life, he took a 13 month journey into Indonesia, mostly by sea, obviously, from India. And he spent 12 years with Serlingpa, learning Lojong teachings and, and other teachings, and finally bringing them back to, to India and teaching them there, and then finally going back and teaching them in Tibet. So, I wanted to kind of just give a little bit of of history here, um, because we see the the great sacrifice that was given, the great sacrifice by these different teachers, and literally many, many lives, were um, sacrificed um, so we could we could hear these teachings you know and to look at just how old the teachings are you know Atisha wrote this in the 11th century and they're still relevant today so they're extremely powerful so that was um, a little setup and so as you as you read um, as we go over these verses together, maybe, maybe that a little bit of that hi- historical background can, can, um, maybe you could hold that in in the background to say like, wow, these these have come from such amazing places with such great sacrifices for so long ago. Um, Yes, Ushila wrote something, but I think time. Um, so anyway, Don, if you could go ahead and and put up the phrases, we're gonna start going through them. And again, um, the Dalai Lama really loves to teach on these. So some of the commentary that I have is definitely influenced by by him and his teachings. Yeah, we could do one at a time, sure. All right. So actually, uh, the this text is written by uh, Thangpa Rinpoche. This actual Lojong text in the 11th century. So, with a determination to achieve the highest aim for the benefit of all sentient beings, which surpass even a wish-fulfilling gem, may I hold them dear at all times. So, this this beginning phrase, this beginning uh, verse, I should say, uh, really opens up the heart. And, you know, what the Dalai Lama likes to talk about when he when he emphasizes this phrase is a couple things. For one... Is that um, we're dependent upon other beings you know our our enlightenment is dependent upon other beings, the cooperation of other beings, our environment is dependent upon other beings, the food we eat is dependent upon other beings, so much of our happiness and fulfillment is dependent upon other beings um, yeah. I can't see what Julia posted either, but um, so this is this is important to note, just to recognize our inter- interdependence. But I think even greater than this is the second piece that the Dalai Lama likes to emphasize, which is the narrowness of mind uh, that we come when we just when we just look at um, ourselves, our mind becomes de- uh, begins to narrow. The Dalai Lama says, like just look and watch your mind contract. When we're only doing things for the benefit of ourselves, watch the mind contract. And I think this is a very, very powerful little piece of knowledge you know, that we could see. When we're only thinking of ourselves, watch the mind contract. And really, I think this is um, interesting to look a little bit deeper in what he means by this. When we do things for the benefit of others, watch the mind expand you know, this he could be very well be pointing to the difference between samsara and nirvana, you know, this idea of separateness, this idea of individualism, and this idea of, or this non-conceptual aspect of beingness, that is just, um, that sees uh, all all of us as unified, right? So with a determination to achieve the highest aim for the benefit of all sentient beings, which surpass even a wish-fulfilling jewel, may I hold them dear at all times. So holding all beings dear at all times. And of course, even greater than a wish-fulfilling jewel, um, wish-fulfilling gem that would give us kind of anything we ever, quote-unquote, wanted. So this is the first one. So Don, you can go ahead and put up number two. So this one, um, everybody loves this one. It's um, <laughs> a joke. Uh, this one sometimes is difficult for people to, people to uh, kind of get their head around. But whenever I interact with someone, may I view myself as the lowest amongst all. And from the very depths of my heart, respectfully hold others as superior. (laughs) Um, So let's unpack this a little bit. A couple things. Here, we, we are holding people dear, not out of pity. So this really guards us against this. We're not holding people dear, out of pity, like we are above them, right? And we are like supreme uh, Buddhas, and you know we're holding people dear because we're taking care of them, and they need help, and all of this stuff. So this really guards us against that attitude of, of pity. But more than anything, this is actually pointing to equanimity, and is pointing to the fact that we're not superior; that uh, we're all equal. And in it, again, it's just guarding us against that individualism. So as human beings, for example, a lot of times we think that we are superior to animals. And we do things to animals that we would not do to human beings. And uh, instead, this is pointing to, again, the mind transformation that takes place when we hold all beings uh, dear and um, in, in as equals, and being that we come from this place that we usually hold ourselves superior, um, and and again this is superior in the way of um, the world revolves around us and we're the most important you know uh, person or thing or entity in our in our mind's makeup, right? So if we can kind of reverse that and we could see other people. Um, as superior, then we have this sense of, of humility and this washes away our, our selfishness and we move into a more compassionate heart. And we can unpack this. We're going to go into like breakout rooms and stuff so we could talk about it more as a group too. So it's not superior. like we uh, this is like not about self-esteem or others are better than me in any way whatsoever. This is about um, equanimity and holding each other um, as all equals. Okay, and the third one. All right, phrase number the verse number three. In all my deeds, may it probe into my mind, and as soon as the mental and emotional uh, afflictions arise. As I endanger myself and others, may I strongly confront them and avert them. So really, this is this is the very basis of the entire path. So this is a very, very, very strong verse. Um, so this points to non-grasping mind. So this is non, non-attachment. So this points to the very core of Buddha's teachings. And so he's talking about mindfulness here, a lot of mindfulness and all my deeds may I probe into my mind as soon as a mental and emotional as soon as mental and emotional afflictions arise, so having mindfulness, as soon as they arise, as they endanger myself and others, may I strongly confront them and avert them. And here too, he's pointing towards uh, applying antidotes. May I strongly confront them and, and avert them. So confront them, meaning that we're not having any aversion, right? And then applying antidotes. So obviously, if we're confronting anger, for example, applying the antidote of loving kindness. Um, If we confront laziness, we apply effort, and so on and so forth. So this verse is extremely powerful, again, encapsulating the very core of the teachings. But I also like how this... um, this mindfulness is is the third verse, and the first two verses are more um, pointing to bodhicitta and the heart and the heart opening, and then we get to the more wisdom practices. I think it's always beneficial to you know drop these wisdom practices into the pool of loving kindness and compassion that we see with the first two. Um, the first two verses. All right, so we could see number four. When I see beings of unpleasant character, oppressed by strong negativity and suffering, may I hold them dear, for they are rare to find, as if I've discovered a jewel treasure. So many of you are are familiar with with this turn, like a precious gem. You know, these difficult people are precious gems. This also points also to, um, you know, to social, you know, social, uh well, I should say like engaged Buddhism too, you know. So with this verse, you know, at these times, like in all times, there's troubled people, there's troubled uh, people Maybe with mental health issues, um, troubled people that are going through strong uh, emotional turmoil, and this points to holding them uh, very dear and using our practice to um, to engage um, in in beneficial ways towards them and and again to uh, not just silently but actually assisting them. So the Dalai Lama is really big on this and points to. Um, you know, those institutions that are, you know, the Buddha, Dharma institutions that are, um, that go to, into prisons and start up uh, schools and, you know, help the homeless and things like this. So, this is all should be part of our practice. Okay, we'll move to the fifth one. So, this one could also be a tough one to swallow here. When others, out of jealousy, treat me wrongly with abuse, slander, and scorn, may I take upon myself the defeat and offer to others the victory." So, you know, the commentary for this verse is is that we're Buddhas. You know, we're Dharma practitioners. We're not of ordinary mind. We're not looking through the lens of samsara. We're looking through the lens of Buddhahood. We're looking through the lens of of the pure intention of saving all beings from uh, from suffering. So when we see this, we see samsara in these beings. We see attachment. We see ignorance. Uh, we we see attachment, aversion, ignorance, the the defilements. And so we need to actually point the way in, and and. Stay steadfast in our own Buddha nature, in our own essence, in love and compassion, and we cannot fall into these lower realms, so to speak, just because people are acting out in this way. So we're really we're being an example um, in this situation. So they may be treating us wrongly with abuse and slander, but I take upon myself to defeat. And offer to others the victory, this example of, of our true essence, and it holds our mind pure. And I remember they asked the Dalai Lama, because you know, he's always talking about peace and whatnot, and they said, "Well, you know what if you're you know attacked and you know what if somebody was basically you were in a situation where it was like you're going to be killed or they're going to kill you or whatnot?" and he just simply said, "Yeah, you know, I'd rather die." <laughs> Hes just like i'd rather i'd rather I'd rather just not have that you know on my consciousness, and not to say that if we're in that situation, we sh- you know shouldn't have uh, you know protection, but there's a lot to be said for mental protection um and not allowing this this anger and fear and jealousy and all these things. Arise in our minds, right? To have the protection of uh, being at ease. Okay, so the sixth one. So, so the sixth one um, goes along with the, the the fifth one a bit. Um, they kind of go together. When someone whom I have helped or in whom. I have placed great hopes, mistreats me in extremely hurtful ways. May I regard him still as my precious teacher? So this goes along very much the same. Okay, and you could put the Don the seventh and the eighth together as well you put, put them both up. So the seventh one is actually talking a bit about um, Tonglin, the practice of giving um, and receiving. In brief, may I offer benefit and joy to all my teachers, both directly and indirectly. May I quietly take upon myself all hurts and pains of my mothers. Of course, this is pointing to... Um, Seven-point cause-and-effect method. Um, this This is actually pointing to two methods of bodhicitta practice in the Tibetan tradition. One, visualizing all beings that have been your mother in the past. I know it might sound silly at first, but it's possible. They're just opening up to the possibility of that. Maybe all beings have been kind to me in the past. Maybe they've been infinitely kind. Maybe they have been my mother. They have taken care of me. And so just trying that on for size to see what that does in the mind, and so that you you will often hear the term mother senting beings, all, all mother sentient beings, all my mothers, which is all beings. And then I quietly take upon myself all the hurts and pains of my mothers. So this is the Tonglen practice of, of just visualizing you know taking in all of that suffering transforming that suffering into brilliance into light into positivity and then offering that back to them all of the goodness you know and and again this washes away the self-cherishing aspect of of our heart minds right that are here just to protect ourselves and again going back to that what Dalai Lama talked about which the expansiveness of mind you know, what's this do to our mind, um, as far as its its uh, contraction and, and expansion? All right, and the final one is just um, just uh, encapsulating. May all this remain um, undefiled by the stains of the eight mundane concerns. And may I recognize all things as illusion, devoid of clinging, and be released of bondage. You know, so these eight orally concerns, you know, uh, between happiness and suffering, fame and ins- insignificance, praise and blame, and gain and loss. So usually we're preoccupied with these. And so this is what he's pointing to here. The un- eight mundane concerns. And then, of course, he's moving into really emptiness. May I recognize all things as illusion, devoid of clinging, devoid of attachment, being released from bondage. So we could see that in these short eight verses, we we, uh, speak on bodhicitta practices, mindfulness, awareness, non-clinging, um, egolessness, uh, emptiness, all in just a few um, a few short uh, verses, so very powerful uh, reminders uh, that we could have. Um, so, let's break up a little bit. I feel like I've been talking for forty minutes, which I have. <laughs> um, so um. So yeah, let's just break up into in uh, breakout rooms. And uh, yeah, Don, can you list the uh, the eight mundane concerns, um, eight worldly concerns, eight worldly concerns? Yeah, happiness, suffering, fame, and insignificance, praise and blame, gain and loss. Yeah, sure. Um, no problem. We can get them. So maybe as we go into breakout rooms, um, we you could scroll up, I think, yeah, in the chat and just see which ones resonated with you and in which ways. I know we covered quite a bit of ground there, but um, yeah, so we just go from there. All right. And I'll see you soon. So um, we have a couple minutes. It's already eleven twenty-six. So um, yeah, I wanted to give people as much time as possible in the small groups to discuss because a larger group is tough. Uh, but um, but yeah, if anyone has a, any insights on what came up for them,
1: hi everyone. Um, hey. Sorry we got cut off. My group, it feel, felt really sorry about that. I felt like we got we weren't able to wrap it up, but oh, I guess that wow. happens. My bad. <laughs> oh, not your bad. I mean, it's just sometimes <laughs> so it, it is. Sometimes it feels long, sometimes it feels short. Um, so I was thinking about, let me look at that chat. Hmm. So the one, number four, when I see beings of unpleasant character oppressed by strong negativity and suffering, they are rare to find. So I was thinking about that. So I sort of slid on back to a very active BLM group in Seal Beach. I don't know if you know uh, that. Well, yeah, anyway, it's a pretty active group here. And unfortunately, there's been quite a bit of racial tension that's been unearthed. And I know it's not the only community, but basically um, I hear a lot of anger on our side. And a lot of, it just feels like a lot of us versus them. We have counter-protesters that are sort of protesting alongside of us. Mostly it has stayed peaceful. Sometimes it hasn't. And no, no like overt violence, but one of the, one marcher last week was pushed. Um, Anyway, so I guess I was looking at this one about How to navigate those, how to increase dialogue, how to transform our anger into compassionate action, because I do believe anger is a tool, but I don't think we're going to make the kind of changes that we need to make with anger on both sides. So that one really spoke to me, and I guess I was like, you know, inquiring into the group about how to talk to my other, you know, my neighbor, friend, literally my neighbor, who is one of the co-founders of the group, and who was just like, no, some people just need to crawl into the halls, you know, where they came from. And so we have, we believe very, very politic, you know, politically, we're on the same page big time. We're probably both as sort of radical as they call. <laughs> but, um But the, the way of going about it, you uh, know. I sometimes feel at a loss. We've had her. Yeah, yeah. You
2: know, I, I just just because we have um, just a minute left or so, and I want to respect everyone's time. You know, that's a wonderful, wonderful situ um, um, example of when we could use these teachings. So th- thank you so much for sharing. And and um, you know, these teachings are called the eight verses of mind transformation. And mm-hmm. and really, this is about transforming our own minds. And our actions can be our actions, you know, our actions can be wherever they are. And this is about, can we transform the mind um, into a state of compassion and wisdom? And can we act from that place? And how does it feel when we act at that place? I mean, if you could take the same action out of anger, you could take the same action out of compassion. Um, and this is, then this is where like, you know one of the other verses of like when i see that afflictive emotion arising let's say anger i'm going to cut it off you know because that's contracting mind that's false mind that's not buddha mind right this is not universal mind right this is um just uh, ignorance of separateness you know that not recognizing the universal buddha nature within all beings like those are buddhas on either side and that out of compassion we could say hey Brothers and sisters, like we have to recognize this universal aspects of our beingness, um, and and so we could say that you know out of that compassionate mind that sees that it's not conceptual, right? Um, and so this is like the, this is the offering, this is the invitation. And again, going back to that that original thing the Dalai Lama said about that expansive mind. You know, when we look at us versus them, the mind contracts. When we look at each other as as in, being similar and having equanimity,
1: um, then watch the mind expand.
0: And hopefully, was that helpful at all? Yes.
1: Thank you.
2: Um, welcome, right. and then. Um, Right. Did you ask something real quick? Yeah, we're over yeah, time, um, but yeah.
0: Just, I know you're running out of time. Um, I just think that practice of, you know, seeing the mother, you know, at least these people were well, once my mother, I mean, as is, is, is might be healing at this point. Um, mm. I was thinking about that. I think about that about our um, leaders, some of our leaders and such as well. Um, and I also wanted to share, there's a peace fest on, August 22nd, a couple of other things that are going on. I'm putting it in the, and Casey, I talked to him about it. He's going to share it out as well, but I wanted everybody to know Martin Luther King Park in Long Beach has had some problems and there's a peace garden and I'm involved in recruiting a multi-denominational blessing between 10 and 11 on the uh, 22nd of August. So I'm putting that up and also something else that I'm doing, which is a um workshop on tuning into your happiness. So I'm gonna put those in the chat right now. And it's good to be here. Thanks, Casey.
2: Welcome. So um so thank you, Sue, for mentioning uh, the Donna and then also too there is a fundraiser which we will share in the newsletter and also on Facebook for Insight LA. Um, obviously, pretty much every institution has had their difficulties. Um, Insight LA um, is not immune to the difficulties that COVID has uh, presented, um, so we are doing a fundraiser and so uh, we will send that along and ask if, if people can contribute in any way that would be that would be awesome. Um, so with that, let's just spend a a moment or so and just dedicate the merit of our practice together today. So recognizing this universal mind that we all share, this universal heart. Recognizing impermanence that we're all in process, that the world's in process, everything is shifting and changing. Recognizing that awareness is there before, during and after all of this impermanent phenomena. That This awareness is non-judgmental by nature Therefore, it is kind and loving. We can forget our beliefs and we can forget all of our thoughts. The awareness will always remain. Non-judgment will always remain. Praying that we never lose sight of this. that all beings may awaken to this part of themselves. We, may we move into unity, peace, kindness, love towards one another. May all beings everywhere with that exception, may they all be happy. May they all be free from suffering. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you.
1: You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more
2: information, please visit us at Insightla.org.